Heavenly Father, our great need this morning is to hear your voice speaking into our lives. Uh, for we're, we're continually surrounded by a whole multitude of voices that, that are continually uh, clamoring for our attention and voices, they're voices that claim to be wise, but in the end, they only lead to confusion and darkness and futility. And, and, and so as we turn to your word again, we, we seek the presence and the working of your spirit in these moments in this place that that we might experience a powerful coming together of your word and spirit in such a way that makes much of the Lord Jesus, that exalts him, that that, uh, confronts us uh, with the free and rich grace of the gospel. And as a result, it brings lasting change to our lives. This is our our great hope and our great need this morning, and so we boldly ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been going through a a series of messages over the recent weeks on anxiety uh, and looking uh, looking each week at a different manifestation of anxiety, a different cause for anxiety, uh, which certainly seems to be a prevailing problem socially. We notice that Uh, people's patterns of emotional and mental health seem to be changing, and not for the better. There are some worrying trends, and so uh, we know it's appropriate at all times, as best we can, to, to, to speak into the wider social concerns in a way that might bring hope and comfort um, and, and, and encouragement. And, uh, but perhaps more importantly, what people might not realize is just how profoundly uh, helpful and uh, impactful the Bible is to speak into these very issues in our lives. Uh, Jesus had much to say about our mental well-being, and, and we believe that his gospel is the v- very solution to dealing with anxiety. We've come to notice that, that it's actually the very issues of our anxiety, our worry, our, our troubles and concerns that he is particularly able to affect. The, the change that he brings often happens on the, on the very level of what's going on inwardly, the, the thoughts and the troubles that are turning over in our minds. We found that Jesus makes a huge difference. We believe that's because he's real. We believe that's because he genuinely rose from the dead on Easter Sunday morning. And and we want to keep learning as we go through this series how that can apply to different areas of anxiety. And this morning I want to spend some time considering the impact that the political climate of our day has on us. A a political climate increasingly marked by polarizing hostility and vitriol. And and the ensuing anxiety that people feel uh, on many different levels. Uh, The Wall Street Journal reported on a recent study uh, that revealed people blame politics for, quote, stress, depression, lost sleep, and other physical and mental problems. And the professor of political science, uh, Kevin Smith, he was the lead author on the study, he made this observation. The major takeaway from the study is that if our numbers are really anywhere in the ballpark, There are tens of millions of Americans who see politics as exacting a toll on their social, psychological, emotional, and even physical health. The findings of the study, nearly 40% say that politics is a cause of stress in their lives. 
About 20% report losing sleep, feeling fatigued, or being depressed owing to politics. Between 10 and 30% say that politics took an emotional toll on them by causing anger, frustration, hate, or guilt, or causing them to make comments they later regretted. About 20% reported that politics had damaged their friendships, and 16% said that politics has made their home life less pleasant. And yet many of us don't actually need studies and surveys to reveal what we already know by experience. The headlines come at us uh, relentlessly, often being the first thing that we see upon waking up in the morning and frequently the last thing upon our minds as we fall asleep at the end of the day, whether it's calls for impeaching the president or concerns over Russian meddling, endless debates over the environment, health care, immigration, gun control, fights over who tweeted what, and, and the discussions of these issues can quickly get heated and toxic and they can affect relationships and even our health. Having said that, the challenge of our current political climate, perhaps the negative associations of it that, that many of us feel are not limited to just the anxiety it seems to arouse, but, but to various other troubles besides that. We notice, for instance, that so much of the current political circus seems to have become a huge distraction of a cause for a huge distraction from some of the most important issues, especially among the political classes. Yeah, we, we, we notice that politicians spend perhaps an inordinate amount of time squabbling over nonsense and stupid things or, or playing the political equivalent of gotcha all in order to score political points. I don't know about you, but I, I, I get more and more bothered by the number of significant things that seem to fall to the lower end of the news bulletins or don't even get mentioned at all that are surely more important and even more urgent in the long run than so many of the things that, that grab the headlines. Certainly they matter more on the eternal scale. It matters Far more, for example, that right now there are more than a million Muslims in incarceration camps in China subject to repeated routines of torture and rape, and that would include children. That matters more. It matters more that religious persecution globally is reaching genocidal proportions in some parts of the world. That matters more. And yet this political circus, especially now that we've entered another election year cycle, has become the obsession of our society for surely an inappropriate amount of focus and distraction. A second thing that occurs to me is that it certainly limits our, if, if we ever had it, levels of appreciation for and respect for our politicians. I, I, I'm sure that the current political climate hasn't generally helped in the esteem with which we hold those who hold public office. Now, I think that can be borne out statistically. I'm fairly confident in surveys uh, that have recently announced that 70% of the U.S. population consider politicians to be generally dishonest. 63% consider them to be doing a poor job. That's not a trivial matter. When we are more persuaded than not, that our politicians are not to be trusted. 
That those who lead us, who, those who, who govern, are untrustworthy and incompetent. That says a lot about the toxic levels of disillusionment that are in society. It cannot go well for us. And then thirdly, besides the issue of anxiety, we have the issue of division. Some of us might have felt division on quite a, a personal level. I know that this has actually got into people's marriages, uh, people's family relationships, certain friendships. People have lost friends. People have felt excluded and marginalized because of the way they voted or the sympathies that they, that they hold. It has certainly seemed to generate or at least sort of stimulate a sense of divisiveness in the wider society. And, and the kind of division that we're seeing in the nation at the moment seems to be split almost down the middle. It's, it, we seem to be more or less split half and half. And when a nation is split half and half, the, the level of competition between the different voices is going to create a bit more rancor and even disdain. And, and certainly it doesn't seem like there's... there's any longer any good basis on which we're able to find any consensus. In fact, many of the people holding the opportunities to build consensus are instead trying to swing the outcome in a more radical and more extreme or at least a more challenging potential outcome. So divisiveness is clearly an outcome of this season in our national history. But I want to just suggest before I move on that divisiveness or division isn't necessarily caused by the current political climate. It seems that the current political climate, in fact, may have done more in terms of revealing a division that perhaps already existed on some level. And maybe in this sense, the current political climate is doing a kind of strange service for us and that it's helping us to identify and highlight the wider cultural expectations and hopes and desires that are felt. Places like Santa Rosa and Sonoma County where, where we are here have genuinely been identified with the progressive side of the debate. And generally speaking, Santa Rosa is a city that goes the way that a lot of urban and coastal parts of the nation tend to go, identifying with a lot of the sympathies and instincts that, that go with the progressive agenda. And a lot of that has to do with ideologies and a lot of assumptions that actually are not necessarily held by huge sways of the, the, the national population. But we can, can live here in Santa Rosa and Sonoma County and other parts of the country in a slightly ignorant Certainly a kind of, of sealed-off bubble imagining that everyone kind of thinks the same way. This is the way normal people think. And when you don't have genuine contact with people who think otherwise, you, you, you're more often than not likely to kind of limit them in your imagination, reduce them to kind of puppets and caricatures to, to the, the kind of people that you can, you can easily dismiss as thoughtless people because, well, everyone who knows, everyone who's right thinks the same as I do. And, and, and the kind of division that exists in our society reveals that we're not necessarily as good at listening to one another as we might have thought we are. We're not necessarily as tolerant and inclusive as we like to imagine we are in the progressive culture of, of cities like Santa Rosa. The reality is there are obviously millions of people, millions and millions of people in this country who feel as though society is moving in a direction that they don't identify with. 
and actually in a direction that they feel harms and doesn't benefit the ordinary culture of their communities, of what they've been used to, sometimes for generations. They're, they're tired of their social norms being disregarded and imposed upon by people with more authority, more media clout, more financial grease, more ability to, to influence and change society than them. They're fed up with being at, at the end of so much decision-making that they don't feel they have a voice whatsoever. And, and, and so, for instance, the, the last election came along as an opportunity to cry out and say, we're here, and we're not completely on the same page. Please don't forget us. And perhaps it's no surprise, or shouldn't be now, certainly in retrospect, that in the same year that Donald Trump got voted for, Brexit got voted for. There are large swathes of population in this country and many other countries of the world, especially in the modern westernized context, which feel left behind and feel that the only way they can get the attention of, of, of who they see as kind of the liberal elites in society is by upsetting them, is by putting someone in the White House that everyone feels a little bit uncomfortable with. But at least it reminds them that we're here. At least it helps them to see that, that we, we have a voice, that we need to be heard. And I think that's the challenge that we need to receive in this current climate. And that kind of challenge, maybe it can wake some people up. Maybe some of us up. And perhaps that in itself is at least a good thing, potentially, because people need to be more and more aware of the other side of society need to be able to read and weigh and evaluate the concerns being raised by others. So, so, so these are some of the things that the current political climate kind of stirs up and stimulates. And I'm here today to tell you whether God is Democrat or Republican, whether God's feeling the burn or whether he wants to continue to make America great again. I'm finally going to give you the word on that. That's my job, so listen up. No, I have nothing to say of that kind of thing. I'm afraid I'm going to do the classic fence-sitting thing that preachers are expected to do at such times. Actually, I say that, I would just make a little stab here and say anybody, any preacher, clergy person who, who imagines that it's their job to become a political commentator needs to be careful they don't leave behind their primary calling which is to point out to people that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and rose from the dead. That is the most important thing. And I just hope that you understand uh, that anything that I have to say about politics, even if it's something mildly intelligent, which, which is probably very unlikely, it, it, it will come nowhere near the importance of, of what this book has to say. And this is why I'm going to point, point us to it now. We're finally getting to the Bible. Some of you are breathing a sigh of relief. Finally, it's about time. Uh, why is it taking you so long? But we're, we're, we're finally there. I get that. You know, I often find myself just scrolling down the various news feeds and noticing the soundbite issue of the moment. And I find myself getting more and more agitated and unsettled. And it's at those times especially that I need to remind myself of the importance of feeding my soul, of going to the Bible so that I can hear someone else's voice, so that I can get my mind aligned with the eternal one. And a passage that I often return to is the one that we're going to read from now. It's, it's one of the songs of Israel. 
And it's Psalm 46. And it says this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose stream makes glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The word I want to call your attention to immediately is the word though. It's there from the start of this psalm in a few places. Look at it especially in in verse 2 and 3. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth give way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. It doesn't say we will not fear because these things won't happen. It says, we will not fear, though they do. The psalmist is expecting tumult. The psalmist is expecting storms and and earthquakes and fairly dramatic descriptions of radical change. He's talking in terms of mountains falling into the sea. This is kind of what we might call apocalyptic language. But but it's not just about natural disasters, although it might apply to such. It's, It's clear as you read the whole psalm through, the target, the focus of his writing is kingdoms, political change, transformation of a kind on a kind of government level. These are the things that can at times at least cause those who, who cling to the Lord Jesus Christ, cause them concern, cause them to feel, is, is anybody in control? And the comfort that we might mistakenly try to offer one another at such times is simply to try and suggest that circumstances will, will surely right themselves. Everything will be all right. That, that's that's the, the way to stay focused and stay hopeful. It's to remind ourselves that, yeah, this stuff, this stuff looks gloomy, but really, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. That, that may be true sometimes. It, it may be that, that, that actually most of the kind of scary kind of you know, uh, prognostics of the, the future aren't to be taken too seriously. It may be that the, the seismic political and cultural shifts aren't going to have massive impact upon us. But even so, the way the psalm is written, that's not where we receive comfort from. We're not to simply receive comfort from the possibility that things will turn out all right. In fact, he's suggesting we need to expect difficulty. Though these things happen, though these things will indeed happen, though trouble will come. This is why, for example, 
Uh, in the New Testament, Peter says this in his first letter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse uh, 12, uh, speaking to Christians who are undergoing trouble, persecution. He says to them, in fact, I'll read the very verse to you uh, so we get the correct wording. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. As though something strange. Listen, we live in a time of peaking levels of entitlement. We live in a time where we have somehow grown this slightly peculiar level of expectation that my life will go well, it should go well, and if it doesn't go well, I want to find out who's to blame. Someone has cocked it up. Because I was expecting, in fact, I'm entitled to ease and comfort. I'm expecting things to go nicely for me. And the Christian can bring that quite bizarre sense of entitlement, that false level of expectation into their relationship with God. I, I expect that everything will go fine for me. I expect that economically, socially, culturally, my relationships, it will be plain sailing. It will be peaceful. Peace in our time. That's what I expect. Peter says, look, if you, if you carry on with that mentality, you will be inappropriately shocked by difficulty. Don't think that way. Or you'll be the kind of person that will react when difficulties come as if something strange is happening. It's not strange. It's actually part of our calling in this world, in this present age we go through, where there is suffering in this life and world of trouble, which Jesus has, was quite explicit about. So the psalmist doesn't encourage us to find comfort in vain hopes. He instead calls us to, I think, extraordinary comfort. This is, I believe, one of the most comforting passages of, 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 of all of Scripture. But the comfort is lodged in something way more substantial. Very simply, it's lodged in the authority of God, the presence of God, and the purpose of God. First of all, the authority of God. We, you see it right there in, in, in verse 6, at the end of verse 6, where the psalmist says, He utters His voice, the earth melts. God's authority is shown very simply by Him speaking. He's the one that speaks creation into existence. His voice has authority. Let there be light. And the psalmist is saying His voice creates. His voice can decreate. And only His voice can decreate. And only His voice. It's only His voice that brings about the kind of change in society that we might fear or that we might long for. Nothing happens outside of his absolute, the absolute authority of His voice. He is in complete control of every king, every president, every prime minister, every policy paper, every piece of legislation, every ruling of the Supreme Court, every appointment to the Supreme Court, every cabinet discussion that takes place, every dialogue between the branches of government, everything the psalmist wants us to be clear on is subject to the ultimate authority of his voice which is holding creation together at the most mysterious, complete level. He is in total control. He is in complete control. And he comes on to, to the same theme before he finishes the psalm in, 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 in verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord. 
how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease. He does it. He brings peace to the earth, to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. It's God's doing that social conditions are brought right. It's God's doing that peace comes anywhere. It's God's work. It's God's power. And we can be confident in His sovereign control over everything. Behold the works of the Lord. Look, He's brought desolations on the earth. Bear in mind, understand very clearly that this psalm is presenting to us a warrior God, if you like, who has final authority in human history, complete control on the battlefield, or, or, or wherever, in the public sphere, in the political arena. God has control. But how has He ex- exerted His control? How has He done it? How has He won the, His most famous cosmic Victory of all time? Desolation was definitely involved. A spear even was involved. God doesn't bring destruction on the world from a distance. God doesn't bring even peace on the world from a distance. God doesn't just declare from a place of kind of strange comfort and ethereal disconnectedness in the clouds. God himself came. God himself was subject to desolation. God got thoroughly involved in the most broken way in our pain and difficulty. God, God got right into the heart of the matter. God went through the, to the darkest of places on the cross in order to win complete, the complete victory that he won. Jesus has conquered all powers. Jesus holds them in his hands. Jesus has authority over every king because he the king of kings became nothing because he, the king of kings, won through humbling himself, giving up his life, giving up his honor, giving up his dignity, everything. And because of his victory, he has authority over all things. Jesus himself said, so all power and authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. And we need to see again, if, if we're worried and anxious uh, about political circumstances of any kind, if we're anxious about the future of our nation, please come back to the certainty that there's somebody who has been through the worst of political oppression, been through the worst of poverty, been through the worst of abuse and hatred and defamation. He's been through the worst of it, and he is exalted over it, and he's won. And he invites us to share in his heavenly perspective. Come, come and see what I've done. Come and see, I've won. I've won already. You can, you can sit with me. Come and get a heavenly perspective. Come and see it uh, from the horizon. Sometimes we use the illustration of coming into land in an airplane in, in you know, gray, cloudy conditions. If you, if you have your eyes open just before you begin the descent, you would have seen the same place from a totally different perspective. Above the clouds, clear blue sky, bright sunshine. And God calls us to come to His perspective so often in this book to help us to be free from the anxiety of those who, who only see everything through the lens of human distraction, human panic. We're not called to that, friends. 
We're not. We're, we, we just don't belong to that. We're invited in Scripture time and time and time again. Come and see how God brings peace. Come and see the way He's done it. And come and live in the good of it. Be still and know that I am God. So that's the first thing, His authority. The second thing, His presence. His very presence. That's how the, the psalm starts. He is a very present help in trouble. Even the language of streams and rivers in verse 4. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. If he's talking about Jerusalem, it's mysterious because there, there, there isn't really. In Jerusalem, there's not really a big river. There might be a few streams, but he's, he's surely describing something more. He's pointing out something in the Spirit. He's speaking of something not less substantial, but more substantial than an actual physical river. See, great cities were often built on, on great rivers. Cities like London and Paris and Moscow. Uh, cities that are built on rivers often survive because they can get through a siege. You know, people might come and attack you, but, but you've got fresh water always available. They, they can't starve you out. They can't thirst you out by an imposed drought. You've got a constant supply, a constant supply of refreshment, constant supply of life-giving water coming through the heart of your city. You're safe when there's a river coming through the city. The irony is, like I say, Jerusalem, not that kind of a city. And in fact, it's one of those cities where actually there are some points in history where, where it was put under siege. So we're not talking about the physical Jerusalem. We're talking about the spiritual, eternal Jerusalem, the people of God. What river is it that runs through this city? What, what river is it that runs through the church of Jesus Christ? What river is it that runs through your life? It's the presence of Jesus Himself by His Holy Spirit. He said, come to me all who are thirsty. If anyone thirsts, John chapter 7, verse 37, come to me and drink, and out from your inmost being will flow rivers of living water. Christian is somebody who's found eternal living water. And not only have you found where to get it from, you've, you've become the one to get it from. You're the person with the well on the inside. You're the one with the spring on the inside. You're the one who, in a society torn apart by selfish concerns and fears and antagonisms, and, and you don't understand my tribe and my problems, and you don't understand what it's like to live in this part of the world, and you don't understand what it's like for me. The society where we're increasingly going in that direction, where we, we can only hear what we want to hear you know, in our kind of little bubble of political identity we as Christians need to learn to live as those who've been set free from that because a river runs through our lives I'm not so dried up that I need to desperately to have the respect of that tribe or those people in order to be valid you can hate me but I have a, I have a river of the love of Jesus running through my life and I get to be actually able to, to bring that to other people at a time when society could be getting torn apart. And who knows, it could get much worse in our nation. It could get more divided. It could get even more bitter and hostile. What do Christians do? Join in? Join sides and pretend God's on our side? 
No, we've got a river running through our city. We're, we're free from that. We can be refreshed and we can be agents of refreshment, bringing life and love and mercy and forgiveness to the undeserving. Because we know we are just as undeserving. If anyone here thinks that they deserve the refreshing life of God, the love of God poured out in their life, you don't understand it yet. It's on the hearts of the dry hearts of sinners that Jesus pours out his Holy Spirit. And you need to receive with thanks, receive with amazed gratitude that he should love you. And people that... People that know they've been loved undeservedly, I deserve the opposite, but he loved me. If I keep learning to live in the good of that, I'll also learn gradually, slowly maybe, to be an agent of love and healing in a society that desperately needs it. And America desperately needs healing. It needs people whose lives have a river running through them. So I invite you to get to know this Jesus. See how he leads you like hundreds of millions all over the world who seem to do life with a certain joy that some of us don't even understand in far uh, more deprived circumstances than we have. Far more challenge. Far more limitation. They don't live nice, happy consumer lives, but they live joyful lives in the love of Jesus. Let's catch up to them. And if that's one of the effects of our increasingly hostile and divisive culture and political climate, thank God. If that's one of the impacts that believers in America learn where their true comfort is found. Third and final thing, purpose. Purpose. Very simply, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Whose side is God on? His side. It reminds me of Joshua chapter 5. Maybe you know the story. This young military com commander called by God to conquer Canaan for the Israelites. He meets Jesus as it happens, this pre-New Testament. Uh, Jesus comes to him and Joshua says to him, Whose side are you on? Us or our enemies? And the reply comes, No. No. What kind of answer is that? It's the kind of answer Jesus always gives. Jesus is not on your side. Sorry. He's not actually on your side. He's not on this side or that side. He's on His side. And He enlists us to His cause, to His purpose. And He has a purpose. I can't see what it is right now. I can't see what He's doing in our nation. I might try and pretend to. Many people do. Christians even saying, well, this is what God's doing. I don't know what God's doing, but I know He's doing something, and I know He's doing something great. He always is. His purposes are good, and, and I want to rise to that banner. I, I, I want to rally to Him and His purpose. He's going to shake everything, the Bible says. In a little while, I'll shake everything. The heavens and the earth, the sea and dry land, and all the nations will come. I'll, I'll shake everything. I'll shake everything that cannot be shaken. And so the, the writer to the Hebrews says, let us be grateful for, for receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. That, that's the way to overcome anxiety. Friends, what is, what's, what's your hope in? 
Is your hope in the national flag? Is your hope in what it used to be? Make America great again? Or is your hope in some radical revolution and transformation of society that will usher in some kind of social utopia? What's your hope in? If you're anxious, I suspect it's because you've put your hope in something wrong. What should your hope be in? Your hope is in this one, the God of Jacob, a covenant-keeping God who is our stronghold, who is our fortress. He has to be. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you for uh, your help in living in the good of, of your sovereignty, your presence, and your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.